Have you donated clothes recently? Do you know who received them? And if you've purchased secondhand clothes in the past, do you know where they came from? Welcome to the second episode of the Broken Nature podcast series. I'm Paola Antonelli, and today we will investigate the global secondhand clothing landscape. Who participates in it, who benefits from it, who suffers because of it, and whether it is in fact a sustainable alternative to the excessive consumption encouraged by the system of fashion, whether fast or slow. The secondhand market is a global network that unites economies around the world. Consider the journey of a single pair of Levi's 501 jeans. They can be designed in San Francisco, made from cotton harvested in India, manufactured in Bangladesh or Mexico, and sold in the United States. If a person discards or donates the jeans, they might become someone else's beloved possession right down the street or in Tokyo, or end up in a large market in Mozambique. In order to shed some light on the complex system of secondhand clothing, we spoke to Andrew Brooks, Senior Lecturer in Development and Environment in the Department of Geography at King's College London. His book, Clothing Poverty, The Hidden World of Fast Fashion and Secondhand Clothes, traces the biography of a pair of jeans and explores how retailers and international charities participate in commodity chains that perpetuate poverty. Jeans are something which are um, amongst the most um, commonplace items of clothing. Uh, They're worn by everyone from street protesters to presidents. We have a clothes collection with nearly all our clothes, but jeans in particular, some of us maybe struggle to find a pair which fits right, Um, maybe one which is the perfect cut around your body, Um, and then they tend to live with you for quite a long time, and then you establish a series of relationships and connections. What is also incredibly interesting in your book is that you talk about how the life of a jeans goes through all different parts of the world. So can you talk, please, about the system? that enables this travel, this journey to happen? Jeans are something which are ubiquitous. Often their their heritage and their design is concealed. Um, It's quite a simple garment to construct and it can blend together components from anywhere from Albania to Alabama. Uh, You can sometimes see strands of cotton Um, from very diverse places blended together in a single pair of trousers. You might have um, the garment cut in one country and then sewn together and riveted in the second place. Where does the life of a pair of jeans begin? Is it the place where the cotton is grown? Yeah, well, it's often quite difficult to trace, for jeans in particular, quite difficult to trace the origins of cotton because jeans tend to take quite schlubby cotton, quite small fibres. So if you have something like a very fine um, office shirt, that needs long fibres of cotton to make the fine thread. Whereas you get an old pair of jeans, if you can rub it apart in your fingers almost, that's because it has quite quite a low grade of cotton. I mean, I'm not talking about high-end Japanese denims here. Historically, yeah, the US has been the major cotton producer. Obviously, China recently um, has recorded some of the largest productions of, uh, of cotton uh, and then sub-Saharan Africa, in particular West Africa uh, and Zambia where I've done work. Uh, and some of these relationships then articulate the kind of hyper-globalization we've experienced certainly in the last few decades. Um, in the same way that Ford car was made in Detroit and they bought iron ore in, 
in from the Great Lakes and then they uh, Model T chug, chugged out the other end of the factory. Uh, but we, we all know that cars are now made from multiple components from different parts of the world. Even a single, simple pair of jeans is similar. It's kind of a package of different relationships. The most profitable relationships in that kind of commodity biography are often located in what I would call the global north. But the global north put in place policies to build and protect it disadvantage. So can you tell us more about the imbalance that began with the 1974 multi-fiber agreement? Yeah, so through the 1980s, across a whole suite of economic and political sectors, we had a real period of liberalization. We had Reagan and Thatcher, and we had this idea that we need to break down barriers to trade. And in the clothing sector, they wanted liberalization there as well, but it was they also had their own domestic clothing industries that they wanted to sort of protect in the final phases. So rather than just dropping away all the barriers to trade, they had they established something called the multi-fibre agreement. So the multi-fibre agreement was a long-term process which enabled um, the economies of the global north to move away from, uh, in this case, clothing manufacturing towards the kind of knowledge-based economies uh, that we're familiar with today. So liberalisation is something which is often done quite harshly in poor countries and quite gradually in rich countries. So African marketplaces were told they had to open their their markets to uh, imports virtually overnight because the global north had the leverage of the debt crisis. Clothing works so well as a kind of vector for understanding the production of global inequality because it was the cotton from India in particular that fueled the British Industrial Revolution. It was clothing which kick-started Industrial Revolution and it was the ability to exploit cheap labour, slave labour that uh, enabled the Industrial Revolution in not just the US and the UK but also elsewhere in Western Europe. The second-hand clothing market has exacerbated the imbalance between the global north and the global south. The system, as we know, was also shaped at the end of the 20th century. Were second-hand clothes always considered waste? Prior to the Industrial Revolution, clothing was really expensive. Even if you're a middle income, you'd have you'd own a few garments. Um, clothing was something that you retained for years and years. No one threw away clothes. They were looked after, they were cared for, and they were repaired. And there was no vibrant exchange of clothing through second-hand markets. And so it wasn't something which was devalued. It's only with the explosion in, in mass manufacturing and now what's um, ballooned into the fast fashion sector that we see the kind of disposable fashion. You became interested in second-hand clothes, and then you started looking also at different parts of the world where second-hand clothes have come to suffocate local industry and actually create a system whereby the dependency of the global south from the global north becomes heightened. So before I ever did any field work, any research on second-hand clothes, I actually worked with factory workers who'd been employed in Zambia in a clothing um, factory and associated cotton mills uh, and I'd speak, spoken to them about the really challenging and horrific working conditions that they laboured under, um, about the difficulties in supporting their livelihoods and this was a factory which um, had struggled to produce garments in a globalised marketplace. It had been operating in the 70s and 80s 
and then closed down in the 90s and the, closed and reopened in the 2000s, um, Africa's done really badly out of globalization. And one of the elements of globalization which has hit the clothing sector has been the liberalization of markets and the opening up to cheap imports. And cheap imports in clothing often mean secondhand clothes. So these have poured into markets in the global south, in particular in Africa, and have made it very difficult for clothing factories to compete. In your research on secondhand clothes um, and on this market, have you also looked at the environmental consequences besides the labor and human consequences? The environmental impacts of used clothing, it's an interesting topic to pull apart because if you want to think about secondhand clothing, it only exists because of the surplus, the overconsumption of fast fashion in the first place. So if you want to kind of correct the environmental issues in the whole system provision, new clothing and secondhand clothing together, we want to start with the buying, not the donating or the discard. Should we avoid donating clothes altogether then? Would that even help or would it ricochet, increase waste, decrease purchases, maybe even eliminate jobs where they are most needed? The system is complex, and we can't expect solutions to come exclusively from citizens' choices. There needs to be global regulation. In the meantime, some individuals will find creative ways to resist it or use it for everybody's advantage. I'm Katekan Mureku, a fashion designer from South Africa. How did you decide to become a fashion designer? I didn't even know what I wanted to study. I studied uh, electrical engineering before. A friend of mine suggested I go do fashion because I seem to like uh, putting clothes together in a way that's different from other people. Can you describe your way of putting clothes together? What were you doing that made your friend say, that's what you must do? I, I don't even know how to explain it because to me, that was like the normal thing to do. At that age, I couldn't afford to get like new clothes or like expensive clothes. So I would go to these antique stores and thrift stores and try to find clothes that I think are very rare. I've never seen this and I don't think anybody's going to have it. And then I'm going to pick that piece and wear it on my own just to stand out. And what kind of clothes were there? Were there clothes that were coming from South Africa? Were there clothes that were coming from other parts of Africa or from other parts of the world? It, it was a mix. It's always a mix. It's, it's usually clothing that come from re local retail stores that uh, couldn't be used or the, the samples that they go buy overseas and then cut out at the back just to get samples or whatever they do with them. They usually didn't have the bag because it was cut out. Maybe they cut a small swatch, they keep cutting, so they didn't have bags. So I would uh, find a lot of those from the local scene. And then the rest, it was like unique clothing from overseas. So it's great because you liked to reassemble, to kind of reverse engineer and reassemble clothes. Yes, 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 definitely. I, I would like to, I, would, I always wanted to experiment. Walk us through the process uh, as a designer. So how, how do you reuse, for instance, a pair of jeans or a button-down shirt? Usually, I like to strip it down. Like the shirt I'm wearing, I'm not sure if you can see it clearly. I think I've fused about three or four shirts in here. 
So I like to get the, the pieces and just strip it down and try to reassemble it in a way that will represent uh, my taste and my style. I'm, I'm the type of person who likes different things being merged together. So if I find a pair of jeans, I like to see something else on the pair of jeans. So I'll go and find a different color with a different print or find a different type of pair of jeans and strip it down and then exchange pieces and try to create something that's completely new. I think that's the whole idea of me taking old stuff. I like to create something completely new from something that exists already. You even found clothes that inspired you in some rubbish heaps, right? You've been able to really collect material pretty much everywhere. Yes, I was working on my first collection and I wanted something really nice and outstanding, but uh, I didn't really enjoy the idea of going to find expensive fabric that I couldn't even afford. Uh, I went to factories and I asked if I could collect uh, some of the stuff that they throw into the bins when they die, like the scraps. I wanted to push because I like uh, making people uncomfortable. I wanted to push it uh, a little bit further. So I went to the rubbish bins and found like some plastic packaging that uh, had been discarded. I fused everything I got from rubbish bins, basically. Even, even the dirtiest dirt can be created into something really nice. Can you tell us about the collection? Tell us how many pieces, how you put it together. Tell, tell us your emotion when you presented it. Just walk us through. Actually, it didn't even start out as me trying to create that type of collection. My, my only aim was to create a collection that represents a culture that I come from. Or through, through the research, it led me to realize that my culture always uses uh, old material to create for, for events. So uh, when I looked at that and I looked deeper into that, I realized, okay, that's why I've always liked old things and using uh, things that people are, wouldn't obviously look at. So I, that's when I started going to look for material, scraps and other material in, in, in rubbish bins. I worked through it for about six to seven months. Uh, towards the end of the year, I think around September, October, we presented at the Durban University of Technology Fashion Show, which they have every year. I wish that we could um, describe in detail these amazingly vivacious and inventive clothing that are clearly made out of other materials, but they have a personality and a synthesis of their own. Are there any economic incentives or benefits to using them? Uh, is it always uh, a savings uh, of, uh, of money or are there sometimes some drawbacks? Most of the time it's, it's saving money. I'm, I'm saving a lot. But at the same time, I've realized that there's not a lot of people who want to use secondhand clothing. Most people want to use new brand new things. And that becomes a little bit difficult. So uh, I have to work more with the people who understand and who are interested in, in sustainable fashion. And I also have to educate the new clients who are, uh, don't know yet so i have to educate everybody so i it means i have to work a little bit harder 
How do you educate them? How do you explain the need for sustainable fashion? I usually take it back to uh, the problem that we have, especially as a fashion industry. As human beings, we should never be in a position where we live in a space where we take things from from the future and use them for now, and the future state it has nothing. You know, I think that has been the biggest problem uh, in the past. The past has taken from our generation to use for them. This is why I have embarked on a journey to take from the older generation and use it now to avoid taking from the future. I need people to understand what it means for for our children and their children to not have things because we took it away. Of course, it wasn't our fault, but it's our responsibility as a woke generation to to try and, and remedy the situations and make them better. So it's usually different cases, but this is what I really emphasize on when I educate people. I need people to understand my view of what sustainability means. You said, Katekani, that you learned a lot from your Mapulana culture. Can you tell us more about it, about the material culture of the Mapulana, so that we can connect it to your work today? The Mapulana culture, my aesthetic is definitely from them. I didn't realize until years, uh, until maybe two years ago that I'm actually a copy of what they do. They love uh, bright, bold colors, and that's who I am. That's what I love. My grandmother, first saw this from my grandmother, they would, uh, because uh, in the back in the day, women were not allowed to work. So my grandfather would go to Johannesburg for, for, for to work for like a month until the end of the month. Uh, and he would come back with suits and wearing suits, uh, being dandy. And because the women wouldn't, wouldn't work, they couldn't uh, afford clothing for events. So what they did was, collect scraps of fabric from old material and just cut them up and try to pinch them together and create these beautiful uh, outfits that I, I fell in love with and just seeing scraps of fabric and they would have papers of sweets, of candy, plastic packaging just fused anywhere and just they don't even think that deep about it. And they don't even realize that they they are actually living a sustainable life or they're doing something sustainable. They're creating art from that. And it was flawless. And I really enjoyed seeing that. And when I look at my work now, I see how it represents the Sipulana culture. Some entrepreneurs have seen the failures of these infrastructures as an opportunity to create new business models that not only serve considerate buyers looking for alternatives to fast fashion, but also change the system from within. I'm Julie Wainwright. I'm the founder and CEO of The Real Real, which is a business focused on luxury consignment or actually resale. How did it all happen? How did you start The Real Real? So I was looking for the next generation of products that were big categories. 
and one that Amazon, to be honest, couldn't replicate easily. As all good ideas happen, I was shopping with a girlfriend, and we went into a boutique that was beautifully merchandised, and in the back was an area called the vault. In that vault uh, was resale. It was all consignment, beautiful items from the local neighborhood. So the main store was not resale. The main store was selling shoes and beautiful accessories, and in the back with all the clothing, which was resale. My friend decided to shop the back of the store, and I've known her for quite a while, and I'd never seen that behavior. So when we left the store, I asked her so many questions about why she made that choice. Um, Had she ever shopped in a resale store? She said never. She would never do that. Had she ever shopped on eBay? She said she would never do that. And then when I said, but you do know you bought resale. And she said, well, I was in a beautiful store. I trust the owner. And the way I look at it, I got Louis Vuitton, Prada, Gucci, all at an amazing price. And these things should be reward because they're in great condition. So all of a sudden, every light went on and I started researching the primary market and was shocked to see how big the, the market was. And the reason I focused on the luxury market, uh, fast fashion was still nascent, although there certainly were fast fashion brands, is that these are items that do endure. There are items that can be, they can be cleaned multiple times. In many cases, they're timeless in their styling. And the iterations from year to year are small changes, maybe buttons or sides or hems, but very small changes. And also, um, I did grow up in a, in a family that used to go look for things in the, um, we used to go to the dump and like see what people had thrown out and see what else we could make out of things that people had discarded. And so we had this mentality in the household that things that perhaps people wanted to discard had still everlasting beauty or could be transformed. So that's sort of my childhood But you fast forward, and literally probably 40 years later, I'm having this conversation. I'm wondering what happened in the years in between the frugal creativity of your household and the real real. I would say my mother's generation and the generation after her had, it was stigmatized, you know? So if you think of uh, the 50s, the 60s were years of prosperity and change. And everyone wanted new and people had more money than they'd ever had before, regardless of what your origins were. So the middle class was alive and well, and new was honored and old was not. For a long time, there was a mentality that secondhand goods were for people who didn't have money. So it had this stigma that it was a thrift store instead of understanding that, in fact, these goods should be reworn. And then you had the go-go 80s through the low end embracing, you know, they were turning basics into something that could be, be worn as fashion. And a lot of people remember Sharon Stone wearing like a Gap t-shirt, I think, or was a Gap shirt on the, in the Oscars. These things weren't built to last. They were made really cheaply um, and they started building up in the landfills. When you focus on things that are made well or designed well, they are built to last. And those were also discarded. And the fashion industry certainly didn't discourage it because they had to make their money. You know, the bigger they got, 
it's a public company, their whole life really revolves around you buying more. It seems that you're hitting this perfect spot of making high-end fashion and luxury less intimidating and making vintage and secondhand more reliable and more acceptable. We had to do that because we had a perception issue. And so that was one of the premise. Now, the other thing which is inherent in our business, but wasn't necessarily something we talked about for the first five years, this is so good for the planet. It's just such a good thing to recirculate goods. One truckload of wasted fashion goes into a landfill a second in the U.S. I mean, it's mind-blowing. People didn't want to hear that. It just felt a little crunchy at the time. Not anymore. No, no. Five year, Around five years ago, because we've always had it as a secondary message. And then we started, we worked with environmental scientists to, to actually quantify the impact of buying resale and putting real numbers against it and make it a repeatable formula. So that helped legitimize what we do. And then people are waking up. That, you know, obviously, if you reuse goods, it just makes sense. You said, indeed, that consignment softens luxury's impact on the environment, and we can prove it. So uh, how could you prove it? How did you find the figures? What kind of indexes and metrics did you use? When you look at tracing a garment back, let's say one um, for women's uh, fashion, and you can trace it back to its origin, how much it took, let's say if it's cotton, how much water it took to grow that cotton, then the shipping costs. And if it, let's say it's dyed, what the dye was, what the environmental impact of that dye, and then what the labor force was, and then getting it to the distribution. So all of that's pretty well quantified. What's never talked about is the significant negative impact of the fashion industry on the environment. It is absolutely quantifiable, the third or fourth largest polluter than any other industry, including the airline industry. And so when you start thinking about how devastating making that $9.99 or $4.99 t-shirt can be and how positive buying any resale that that you feel comfortable wearing is, it's really, really impactful. It's so impactful. You have kind of motto of sorts that describes your company's goals, the five R's, resell, repair, reimagine, redistribute, and reaffirm. Can you please tell us about it? So resell makes sense, right? Repair makes sense. When you start getting to reimagine, that is really exciting. And we did our first line of clothing, working with an atelier reimagined, and we had brands like Stella McCartney gave us the goods that had been damaged by a bad return or in the warehouse. Balenciaga gave us their items. Dries Van Noten gave us their items. And they were completely reimagined. When you get them, the overall beauty of the design remains intact. What happens is you have new ways of embellishing things, or perhaps there were Damages, like for instance, I bought a Jackmiss sweater and clearly the cuffs had been damaged at one time. So now they were completely reimagined with colorful embroidery holding the cuffs to the sweater. And so you start thinking about what else can you do with these items? Because they would have been thrown away. They would have been burnt. There was no other way to think about it. So the question is, 
you know, how far can you push this concept? I think it is absolutely one of the most important directional um, things we've ever done for the next way of thinking about reducing waste and, and keeping these garments alive in some form. Another R that is particularly interesting is redistribute. So the items that cannot be upcycled are donated to, to select charitable organizations that can put them to good use. Do you know where these items end up and what these organizations do with them? Well, we do choose them where they are either they either then reuse them or they make sure they go out in the market. So um, it's one of our goals to make sure that they don't then end up on a boat going someplace else. Our goal is to make sure we're working with someone that will either reimagine them themselves or fix them or keep them in a community. I don't know if we didn't talk about this, but I want to at least get this point out because it's a huge contributing factor. It's not just what people buy. In general, 40 to 50% of everything a company makes in the fashion industry is is in the landfill or burnt. Do you have any pull with the companies to convince them not to do so? Laws are going to be important to make this change. And at least in France, which is, you know, a, a important, very important country for luxury brands, uh, the French laws are getting very, very strict about, about no burning of goods, especially from the luxury space. So that forces most luxury players like Caring and LVMH to go back and re-envision their supply chain and try new ways to reduce the uh, making the wrong garment and not overproducing without hurting their sales. Again, both public companies, so they want to figure out the balance between that. So we've got a long way to go. I, I can't see brands in the U.S. changing unless the laws force them to change. So you often hear people say that resale is the future of fashion. Is it true? And, and what does it mean? How can a global systemic fashion business based on resale be sustainable? Well, I mean, that's a little hyperbolic. We wouldn't even say resale is the future. We would say resale is is a part of the fashion solution and will have equal weight going forward. It isn't the future of fashion. The future of fashion is always creativity. It's always changing. It's always looking at new ways of showcasing uh, materials and the human body and the human spirit. Resale, however, is legitimate. It wasn't legitimate before. So to me, it is the future of fashion re-envisioned, but they both have to go together. So should secondhand be our first choice? The Real Real is one of many companies that are promoting resale as an acceptable alternative for even the most voracious fashion buffs, and one that might in the long run help correct some of the wastefulness of the fashion system. But are these options available mostly in North America and Europe, and then only to affluent buyers? The same regions that with their spending power and consumption behaviors are driving the excessive production of new garments? How can the fashion system become more equitable and mend the dramatic imbalance between global North and South? Secondhand may be a part of the solution, but clearly, at least for now, it is also still part of the problem. Knowledge and awareness can transform complicit consumers into active citizens, and that might be just the spark the system needs. Thank you for listening to the MoMA Magazine podcast. 
Thank you to Andrew, Katekani, and Julie for sharing their time and knowledge with us. For more information about their work in this episode, check out moma.org forward slash magazine. The Broken Nature Podcast is hosted by me, Paola Antonelli, and produced by Isabel Custodio, with research and writing by Anna Burkhardt, and assistance from Alex Halberstadt, Prudence Pfeiffer, and Leah Dickerman. Original music by Pablo Altar. Thank you to Allianz, MoMA's partner for design and innovation. And tune in next week for the next episode in the Broken Nature series.